I'll be reading Bible reading. Um, this comes from James chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. Uh, on some of the pew Bibles in front of you, you might, you might find it on page 1268, 1268. Uh, so James chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. If you are uh, new to our church, you can grab one of those newsletter and there's an outline on the inside that will be helpful for you if you'd like to use that. Now, what we be- believe as Christians is that God's Spirit dwells in us. And as we hear God speak, when we read the Word of God and when we hear it taught, God's Spirit, He applies that to our lives and, and He slowly changes us and conforms us into the likeness of Christ. And so we want to pray that that might be happening even now as we reflect on these words. So let's pray once again that God will be changing us bit by bit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these quite challenging and difficult words, that your Spirit will be applying your word to our lives so that we might ever little be conformed into the likeness of your dear Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by saying that tonight I'll be asking you some very deep and personal questions. What is one sin that no one is ever free from? What is one sin we all have, all of us, but we do not like admitting to? What is one sin where the more we have in ourselves, the more we hate when we see it in others. What is one sin that makes us unpopular, unlikable, but yet we are unconscious of it in ourselves? You see, we all have it. 
young, old, and everyone in between. It is what has been called the great sin. It's the sin that started the downfall of all humanity. And what is it? What is it that we all have? It is pride, self-conceit, haughtiness, arrogance, loftiness. C.S. Lewis, that great Oxford professor, the author of the Narnia series, he called it the great sin in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, and he said this. He said, The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchaste, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And that is the sin that none of us are free from. Now just in case this, this evening... Some of you sitting here might be thinking, well, that's not me, I'm not proud. If you're thinking that, that just confirms that you are. And even as I reflect on my past week, the many experiences, the many meetings, the many things I did and experienced and felt and hurt, as I reflect on this past week, I just wonder how much of the angst and the frustration and the anger and the annoyance and the impatience and the disappointments I felt this past week was just because of my pride. And you have a go reflecting on your past week or that you felt and experienced this past week. How much of that was because of your pride? And so this evening I'll be asking you some very personal questions questions about your heart in fact these are questions that god is asking us this evening and so let's have a look james here firstly he speaks of the problems of the proud pride never does anyone good nor does it do ourselves any good first we see here it leads to fights and quarreling it leads to fights and quarreling and james you see here, he's very straightforward he's very blunt he doesn't beat around the bush. He, he, he calls it as it is. And he's speaking to Christians. These are people of the same family with the same heavenly father. He's speaking to Christians. And what does he say? Look at verse 1 with me. Do, do keep your Bibles up open to James 4. Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do you notice how interesting that is? He doesn't say... Are there any fights and quarrels in your church? He knows that there are. Between brothers and sisters, between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, between best friends, colleagues, boss, even within the church, even husband and wife fight. And so what is it that causes fights and quarrels? Well, reflect on the last time you had a disagreement, a misunderstanding, a conflict, just last time. Reflect on that, and perhaps that might even be this past week. Tell me whose fault was it in that conflict? 
or it's the other person's fault, is that guy, he's a punk. Is that lady, she's a little bit of a clown, or it's that other guy, he's so overly sensitive, come on, get over himself. It's always someone else's fault. And I wonder whether you think that way. It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder whether you are a bit like me. Every time I've had a disagreement or a conflict, what do you do afterwards? You rewind the scene in your mind. And what are you doing? You're picking out all their faults and flaws and all their mistakes. It was all their fault. But what does James say here? Whose fault is it? Well, we read here they come from within, not from without. They come from our own hearts, our own desires. They come from the place of pride. You see that pride, that sense, I know better. It is my way or the highway. In fact, I am always right. And that's what James is pointing out. Look at verses 1 and 2. Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You see, that's what happens in fights, isn't it? You want something, but you don't get it. You want it your way, but it won't always be your way, perhaps because it's not loving, not wise, and not right. And then what happened? Look at it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You fight so much that, do you notice that, you even kill. Now, I wonder how many of us died in a fight. Well, none of us have because that's why we're sitting here. We haven't died yet. But James, was he exaggerating here? I don't think he was because you see what he was saying. How many of us in a conflict we ever think or wish in our heart, I wish that person was dead. We've killed him in our heart. And we, we, we fight, we quarrel. If, if we always stand on our own rights, if we think we can never be wrong, if we think we must always have it my way, if we're never open to compromise, never open to reason, never open to trying to understand the other person's perspective, being in their shoe. And what do you call that? That's pride. That's stubbornness. And who's to blame? We've only got ourselves to blame. We are our own worst enemy. And what's another problem of being proud? Well, second here we read, pride leads to no prayers or unanswered prayers. You see, the problem with those who are proud, and as I'm saying that, we are to think of ourselves. The problem with the proud is that we think, I can do it on my own. I can manage it on my own. I can solve my own problems, so much so that I forget to pray. I mean, how many times has that happened to you? It, something's happening. The pressure is on. The stress is up. And you feel no peace. The blood is boiling. You, you're angry. You're, you're frustrated. And what do you do? You pick up the phone and you call your friend and you vent. You, you, you splash it all out. You, you vent. Or you devise ways to fix it up yourself. Or you try to think about, well, who am I going to get to help me, to back me up against this other person? And then what happens? Well, what has happened is that you've forgotten to pray. And then we wonder why we don't feel any peace or comfort or the love of God. 
And so do you see that? Verse 2, the second part. You do not have because you do not ask God. It comes down to pride. And when we do go to ask, they go unanswered. You see, what that says is that not every prayer we pray to God gets answered by God. Not every prayer we pray, God listens to. I mean, prayers like, God, can you just listen to me and do as I say? I mean, do you think God's going to listen to that type of prayer? Or, or God, can you help me in my struggle? I'm, I'm overwhelmed, but fix it my way. Fix it quickly. Don't let me wait. Do you think God's going to listen to that type of prayer? Or God, grant me success just to prove that you still love me. Do you think God's going to listen to that type of prayer? And so that's what James is pointing out in verse 3. When you ask, do not, uh, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, it's, it's praying to win the lotto. Who, who prays like that? Well, you shouldn't. To get more stuff, like God cares for more stuff. It's praying, you see, wrongly. Praying that my will be done, not God's will. And then we wonder why God doesn't answer. Is it not pride? But instead, as Christians, how do we pray? We pray like the Lord Jesus. Not my will, Lord, but your will. Your will be done. Please help me, Lord. It's uncomfortable what I'm experiencing now. I'll wait upon you, but your will be done. Lord, please sustain me. What I'm struggling with now is difficult and is overbearing. This trial is hard, but strengthen me and your will be done. See, a wonderful prayer, we can keep in mind, was a prayer that someone last year said they were praying for me in their kindness. They knew of the stress and pressure of ministry. They understand the types of temptations that I might face, the struggles. And over coffee, he said to me, this is a prayer that we as a family, we've been praying for you. And it comes from Proverbs. It goes like this. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and still and so dishonor the, the name of my God. It's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? Not too much, not too little. But you see, pride here leads to fights, quarrels, unanswered prayers. But now we see it gets worse. You see, if we have proud hearts, if, if our heart is proud, then, then third, what we've done is we've set ourselves up with God as enemy. I mean, that's how ugly and heinous pride is. But yet it's so countercultural. Because in our world today, in our society, people look upon the proud and the, those who have pride and, and think it's a good thing. You see, I'm, I'm proud of myself, of my achievements, of my talents, of my successes, of my skills, of my abilities, of all that I've done in life. I'm so proud of myself. And when society hears that, they think, good on you. Applause. But it is so wrong. Why is it so wrong? It's wrong because it fails to recognize God. You see, my abilities, 
my talents, my skills, my successes, my achievements. It is all because of the kindness of God. And so rather than pride, it is deep thankfulness and gratitude. But for the grace of God, I am nothing. As you see, it's Lewis again, he said, If your pride causes you to exalt yourself, you are painting a target on your back and inviting God to open fire, and he will. God will bring down the proud. You see, remember, it was pride that made the devil the devil. And that's what we see here. To be proud means to be selfish, to be self-centered, as opposed to a value of our church, and that is to be God-centered, not me-centered. But to be proud is to be selfish, me-centered, to see what I can get my hands upon, to see what I can accumulate, what I can amass in life, what I can possess. Just like you know what Shakespeare said, that the world is my oyster, what can I get my hands upon? But when our love for things is more than our love for God, we have God as enemy. And James here, he doesn't hold back. You see, he uses strong language. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Adulterous people. He's speaking to the people of God here. You've been unfaithful, just like an unfaithful wife cheating on her husband. This, James is saying, you, the people of God, you've been cheating on God. He goes on to say, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Which means you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Jesus says so himself. You, you can't serve both God and money. You cannot do that. And so if we are people, and you reflect on your own heart and your own life, if we are people who love my car more than God, I'm cheating on God. If I love my career if I love my ambitions, if I love my titles more than God, I'm cheating on God. If I love my bank account more than God, then I'm cheating on God. And here we read the Spirit of God who dwells in all Christians. He grieves when that happens. He longs, he even envies for our affections, that our affections will be for God first. And not for anything else. And so we read verse 5. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. And so you see here to be proud is to set ourselves up as an enemy of God. And so if the way, the ways of the proud leads to so many problems, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is God's way. And that is the way of being humble. You see, the proud, they're always looking down, looking down upon everyone else and thinking, I am better. But the humble, they don't look down, they look up and they see there is God above me who is far greater, far more glorious, far more majestic, superior to I am. And what do I do? I am humble. I am humbled. And so look at verse 6. But he gives more grace, that is, no matter how terrible or deep our faults, our sins, there's always enough grace to pull us up. And that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so what does the humble do? Well, firstly, they submit to God and not the devil. 
they resist the devil and not God. And so submitting means I'm placing myself under God, under his power, under his love, under his protection, under his care. And it is a beautiful thing. Why wouldn't you? Why would you want to live life trying to sort out all the complexities of life on your own when there is a God to lean upon, to trust in, to depend on? I mean, just this last week, I, I heard at least half a dozen times, and I heard it again this morning from members of our church. They say to me, as they reflect on their own struggles, I don't know how you can live life without God. How can anyone do that? When we've got God to lean upon, it is so much better. And so to humble, we submit to God. And resisting here is, is to push the devil aside, to, to, to not fall into his schemes and temptations and seduction. I mean, that's how the devil works, isn't it? He lures us in with temporary pleasures, with fleeting gratification, with momentary luxuries. He promises the world, the devil promises you everything. But what does he do? Leaves you feeling empty and used. You see, when the devil tempts someone to commit adultery, what happens and what results? Not just a trial of destruction, but also a sense of emptiness and being used. The one who's been tempted to be greedy, what ends up happening? You think you can get and feel satisfaction, but you're left feeling empty and used. And so verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, the reason why we who are Christians fall into the trap of the devil is because we don't resist him. And the reason why we don't feel near and close to God is because we don't draw near to God. And we don't draw near to God if we continue to justify our sins, nurture our greed, avoid reading the Bible for fear we might be exposed. We don't turn to God in prayer and depend on him because we're too busy. The is calling. Then I'm keeping God at a distance. And then we complain, why do I feel that God is so far? Well, where to blame? And so look at verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, James making clear here, if you're a Christian, no double lives. No double lives. Be clear, be transparent. Only one life. You're either with God or against him. And if you are with God, then that comes with great humility. Great humility. There's no pride when you know who God is. There's no pride in front of God. There's no gloating. I mean, just think about what it means for us to belong to God, to have the hope of salvation, to have our sins forgiven. In one of the growth groups I attended this past week, one of the members expressed it really well. He says, we have to understand the gravity of our own sins. And when you understand the gravity of your own sins, you mourn, you weep, you wail. I mean, just imagine if your sin or my sin was so terrible that it caused the death of another human being. How would you feel if your sins 
killed someone else, I'll feel so terrible, so overwhelmed with guilt, so indebted, and I've got no way to pay. But you see, the reality is that our sins did kill someone else. Our sins did cost the life of someone else, but not just any other human being. It's the life of the Son of God. And so if our sins is that severe, so, so serious, we grieve, we wail. There's no arrogance when you stand beside the cross. And so that's what we see, verses 9 and 10. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You can't be happy with your sins. But then we read, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so even if the world looks down upon us, God lifts us up. Even if our sins weigh us down, we come to him, God lifts us up. The humble is one who submits to God. And the humble is also the one who shows humility towards others. The humble is not the one who thinks, I'm better than you. But the humble is the one who sees, I'm no better than you. I'm just as broken, as sinful as you are. And that's why James goes on to say, if you are humble towards others, show humility towards others, you don't slander. Look at verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. That is, do not go around and speaking about someone else behind their back. Don't try to divide and conquer. Don't be the type of people who try to get people to side with you and then to together think ill of someone else or to hate someone else. I mean, that's an ugly thing because not only is it so hurtful, but what happens? It travels around like Chinese whispers and it grows. It develops, it gets distorted, it becomes untrue, and careless talk hurts lives. And so be careful what we say when the other person is not around. And I'm sure as we read this, we've all fallen into this mistake. We hide our, hide our gossip and slander in, in prayer points. Let's pray for this person. Do you hear about this person? Let's pray for them. But be very careful. And why? Because it is to take the place of God as judge. Look at our final verses. Verse 11. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? And so you see, if we are to show humility towards one another, then I would be far more generous in my thoughts about you, far more sincere, far more gracious in my thoughts about you. I don't presume upon your intentions, which is often the cause of conflict. When people start presuming, I know why you did that. I know what's on your heart, but how do you know what's on their heart? How do they know what's on your heart? I mean, it's a cause of a lot of conflict to presume upon intentions. Or I don't presume that I can see and know everything. And often that happens in every situation. There are so many angles, so many perspectives, so many words and whatever's been flown around. But if I only see a little bit, how can then I make a judgment on everything and on everyone? 
And of course, I don't speculate on what I can't know and don't know. I don't make some grandiose speculation, speculating the worst, often in people, in character. They did that because they are so bad they are like that. Because I can't see into the hearts of anyone. And so we don't speculate. I make sure. These are wise words I heard. I make sure I don't get baited by gossip and slander. As enticing as it might be to hear of someone else, I don't get baited in because it's just a lure to bait you in. Now, I've shared this principle before here a while ago. It's a principle I learned when I was in my first year of Bible college on how we're to think about what we say about one another. And the principle is do not triangulate. Have you heard that before? Do not triangulate your relationships. That is, if anyone has anything against a brother or sister, don't go tell someone else so that they might go tell someone else so that hopefully eventually it will come back to that person and someone will tell that person off. That is to create triangles in your relationships. That's not how Christians deal with things. If you have something against a brother or sister, what do you do? The courtesy and the respect to be shown is to speak to that person directly. To express, you may not be aware of this, my brother, but when you said this, did that, that hurt me deeply. I just want you to know that. Go direct. That's the only way where reconciliation can happen. It's the principle Jesus teaches. But to slander, to go around, that's just being proud. And there's no reconciliation there. You see, that's a principle that we've made extremely clear in our eldership. No triangulating of relationships in our eldership. If there's an issue, go direct. We've made it clear in our board of management here. If there is an issue, no triangulation, go direct, reconcile. No triangulation. We show humility towards one another. And so it's worth reflecting, isn't it? Just on the last conflict you've experienced, was it because of pride? But you see, the humble will, want, will be one who's in submission to God and will show humility before others. And so in a passage like this, which is, I find, very confronting, very challenging, how do you feel now after a passage like this? I mean, I don't think any one of us can still stand tall and proud. You see, James here raises very deep personal questions. He, he brings us to remind us, where do we stand? But he reminds us also that the humble will be lifted up. And was that not the way of salvation? Being humble is how we were saved in the first place. I'm a broken, wretched sinner. I come to the Lord for forgiveness and he forgives me. Humility was how I was saved. And humility was the way of our Lord and Saviour himself. I mean, in our first reading, who is Jesus Christ? The Lord of the universe. But he left his glory in heaven, came down to earth as a man. God becoming a man. But not only that, becoming the servant of those he made. That's just unbelievable. And try to picture what Jesus did with his disciples. He put on the servant's apron 
went on his knees to wash the dirty and filthy feet of his disciples. It's just unbelievable. The Lord of the universe on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. But even worse, he goes to the cross and dies. I mean, our Lord and Saviour was humble himself. And so when we think about that, when we reflect on our Lord and Saviour himself, how can any one of us be stubborn anymore? Be proud anymore? Standing on our rights anymore? Never making sacrifices? Unwilling to forbear in love? See, the pursuit of disciples is to be humble like our Saviour. And as I was reflecting on this passage this past week, it convicted me to just to see how wrong it really is when Christians fight. It is so, so wrong. Because we are part of the same family. And God does not take sides. These are his children. It's just like in our own household, as a father of three children, I'm not going to back one child against another child. I'm going to love them all. If they're bickering, I'm not going to be happy, but I'm not going to take sides. They better resolve it, reconciled. Yet, as Christians, we sometimes think, well, God's on my side. I'm going to get this group of Christians to be on my side. That is so wrong. In fact, if anyone's side is to be taken, it is God's side. We are to be on God's side. And so here are some questions for you to remember, to reflect on, if you are in a situation at the moment, or the next time it happens, to test whether your heart is indeed humble. They are these. When you are in a conflict, do you wish for that person to fail and to fall? And when they do, and if they do, will you gloat about it? That's the first. Or do you wish them well still, even though they've hurt you deeply, and you pray for them still? That's the test to see where your heart is, what your heart is like. Again, C.S. Lewis, he said, When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Our careless lives set the outer world talking and we give them grounds for talking in a way that throws doubt on the truth of Christianity itself. I mean, let none of us here be guilty of that. Instead, all of us let our lives be one that will bring glory to God because we are humble. Now, having said all of this, you must hear me say, I am no better than any of you, nor are any of you better than me, because we are all broken, wretched sinners saved by grace. I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to find forgiveness of sins. We're all broken, wretched sinners saved by grace. And because I am aware of that, I need to remember to turn to God that he will change my heart and change my character. And so what I do to, to make sure that I'm in check for the day is I pray a prayer each day that I learned from Peter Adam. And, and we'll pray it now and then we'll end. My prayer goes like this. Please make me the person you want me to be. Prepare me to do the good works you want me to do and help me to do them. May I live today by these words of Paul. For me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Today I offer myself to you to love, worship and serve you. Please help me to serve you today in all that I plan to do and in all the unexpected opportunities you send. And please increase my proactive love, friendliness, tolerance and generosity and my sympathy, patience and forbearance. May this day be my best day of knowing, loving and serving you and living for your glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray a prayer like that each day. Amen. Let's sing.